In Parshas Baloscha, we have the story of the slav, the quail, as they're translated. The story goes that the Hasafsuf Hashabrikirbo, some segment of the Jewish people, they had Hisavu Tava, they had some kind of lust, some kind of desire for meat. They said, We were longing for meat, we wish we had some meat. We remember the fish that we had in Mitzrayim, we ate in Mitzrayim and the Kishuim, and the Avatichim, and the Chatzir, and the Betzalim, and the Shumim. They had all kinds of uh, delicious vegetables, cucumbers, melons, uh, leeks, onions, garlic. Now we have nothing. All we have is mun. They've been having mun for a while. They were sick of mun. They wanted something to eat besides mun. They wanted, uh, they wanted meat. Hashem was not happy with their request. The mun was wonderful. So can explain. And Moshe was upset. Hashem was upset. Moshe said, where am I going to get meat from? Hashem said, do you doubt me? You don't think I can provide meat? Of course I can provide meat. That the... Moshe said, really? There are 600,000 people. You're going to tell me to get meat? If I shacked all the cattle and sheep, will I find meat? All the fish, will I find meat? Moshe said, you doubt? Hashem said, you doubt me? Hayat Hashem Tiktzar. Of course, you'll see. You'll see I'll provide them all with meat. So Hashem brought... Uh, there's a whole story of the Zikainim and Eldad and Medad. We're not going to get into that. Hashem did indeed bring, did indeed bring meat. Hashem brought slav, Hashem brought salvim, plural of slav, from the sea. A humongous, humongous crowd of slavim, kind of like a crowd of cicadas, but I guess tastier and larger and fatter, and uh, tons and tons of them. People went out and collected uh, vast quantities of slav. They had all the meat they could possibly desire. However, it was not uh, not going to end well. The meat was still within their teeth. And Hashem was furious with them. Hashem smote them. And they called this place. They buried all the people Hashem killed who had these inappropriate tava, who complained inappropriately. And Hashem killed them. He gave them what they asked for, but it was a cursed gift and they died. Hashem killed them. This is not actually the first time we hear about Slav. The first time we hear about Slav was actually way back in Parshas B'Shalach. We're in Bahalosra now, but way back in B'Shalach and Chumash Mos, we already heard about the Slav. There, the Slav is embedded in the story of the Mun. It says that the, the, the Jews complained. They said, they said in Mitzrayim, again, the, the very similar story. It said in Mitzrayim, we had all this food, but there they didn't have money yet. There, in our story, they already had the mun. They were complaining that all we have is mun. Nafshenu yuvesha ain't called bilti elamun. We have mun, but mun does not satisfy us. Back then, they didn't even have mun. They had nothing. So back then, again, they, they complained to Hashem. They complained to, they, they said, we had all kinds of tasty stuff in Mitzrayim, and now we have nothing. But there, they, there they, they, they really had nothing. So Hashem said, okay, I'm going to bring you mun. He didn't call it mun. He said, I'm going to bring you bread from the sky, which they eventually called Mun, and you're going to prepare it, and so on. But also, in the course of that, uh, in the course of that discussion, the Moshe said, Hashem will provide you Basar as well. And the Psukim go on, and they say, Hashem said, I have listened to the complaints of the Jewish people, that you will have both basar and lechem. And sure enough, the Pasuk says, so the lechem was the man, of course, 
and what form did the did the baser take? Here we have the, our first introduction to Slav. There was, a, again, a large crowd of Slav. And then there was Du and Mon and so on. So that is the first place that we learn about the Slav. In both cases, the Slav were sent as a response to the complaint to the Jewish people that they, that they did not have food. In the story in Beshalach, it was embedded in the context of Mon. They started with nothing, it sounds like. They didn't even have money. They didn't have anything at that point. They didn't have bread. They had no money, no, no, no food, no anything. Hashem gave them money, and He gave them slav. doesn't say anything about punishment there. It doesn't say they were punished. doesn't say they were killed. In our story of slav, in Parshas Baloscha, Hashem was furious with them. Chara'af Hashem. They already had the money. They, they complained. Mon is not good enough for us. Hashem was angry with them, and they were punished by Hashem killing a, a number of people. So, most Mepharshim understand that these are two separate stories. We have Slav in Parshas Beshalach. We have another episode of Slav in Parshas Baloscha. Slav appeared twice. The Gemara, the Gemara understands this way. The Gemara says in Maseches Arachin, the Gemara says there were Esther Nisyonos, ten trials, ten Averis, that the Jewish people committed vis-a-vis God in the desert. Shnayim Bayam, there were two at the Yamsuf, Shnayim Bamayim, two involved water, Shnayim Baman, two involved the Mun, Shnayim Baslav, two involved the Slav, Achas Baegel, one was the sin of the golden calf, Achas Bimidbar Paran, in the wilderness of Paran. So these are the ten trials, Vatanasu Osi Ze Eser Pa'amim. God says that the Jews tried him ten times. Two of them involved Slav. What, the Gemara then goes and enumerates specifically what all these trials were. Shnayim Baslav, so what were they? Beslav Rishon and Beslav Sheni. There were two Slavs. Slav, the first Slav and the second Slav. Slav Rishon is the one in Pashas Beshalach where they said, Beshiftachem al Sir Abbasar, that the, that the, that the, that, that back in Pashas Beshalach where they complained about it. Slav Sheni is an Arab Pashan, Baloscha, Vasafs Vasher Bekirbo, that the where they asked where they asked for meat again, and they had the they had the complaint about the slav, and they, Hashem gave them the slav. So according to Chazal, there were two episodes of slav. Apparently, both are considered nisyonos, improper action of Klal Yisrael. But the first one, Hashem doesn't say he was angry, doesn't say he punished them. Second one, he does. But according to Chazal, there were two different episodes, and they're both enumerated among the ten trials that the people tried God. Now the question is, if there was already Slav from the first episode, what were they complaining about? If they already had uh, all these birds flying around and providing food for them, why do they complain again? So Rashi says they wanted more Slav. Even though they had Slav, they wanted their, their appetites increased. They wanted more. Tosus brings Rashi and says Rashi apparently understands that the Slav never stopped. Just like the Mun, once it began in the beginning of their sojourn through the desert, the Mun kept falling for the entire period of their wandering through the desert, the Slav also kept falling. That's apparently Rashi's position, and when they asked for Slav in Arpasha, they were asking for more Slav, they had greater appetites, but the Slav were going all along. So in this episode, they asked for extra Slav, for more Slav. But then he brings from Rabbi Yosef Kara, he says that no, the first Slav was a one-time thing, or it ended at some point, there was no more Slav, unlike the Mun, which kept on going, the Slav had terminated, and now they had no more Slavs. Now again they complain, we want meat. And Hashem brought them Slav, and he killed them with it. In any event, this is the standard approach of, of the Gemara. 
of the probably most Mepharshim, that the Torah relates the episode of Slav twice, once in, Torah talks about Slav twice, once in B'Shalach and once in Baloscha, because the Slav happened twice. The episode of Slav occurred twice, two episodes of Slav, once in B'Shalach and a second time in Baloscha. The one great exception of the Mepharshim who does not understand the narrative this way is Rav Yosef Bacharshar. Rav Yosef Bacharshar is a fascinating commentary. He was uh, a Frenchman. He was one of the he was one of the school of the Balitosus. He was a Talmud of Rabbeinu Tam. He wrote a famous pirush on the Chumash. People sometimes think people sometimes have the the stereotype, the misconception that the great Mefarshei Apshat were the Sfardim, were the, the Spaniards, the Spanish Mefarshim like Ibn Ezra, and so on. And people think that the Ashkenazim, the Balitosus. They either didn't learn Chumash, or if they did, all they were interested in was Midrash and Chazal, and they, and they didn't really study Chumash per se, and they didn't study Pshat. This is, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. The Balitosus had tremendous Balea Pshat. Of course, they were Talmudists. They, they weren't philosophers generally like the Spaniards were, like the Rambam and Ibn Ezra. They tended to see things through the perspe- from the perspective of Chazal without studying other systems of thought, like Greek philosophy and medieval philosophy and Arabic philosophy, they did indeed have a, have a completely Chazal-focused worldview. However, that doesn't mean they weren't interested in Chumash. They studied Chumash to a, to a, to a great degree. As a matter of fact, there's, there's an addition, a, a compilation, an anthology of, of Pirushim of the Balai Tosus Alatara called Tosus Alatara. It's about 15 volumes. And uh, the editor, the compiler, a man named Gellis, he writes that it's, it, it's, it's not an exaggeration, or it's only a small exaggeration to say that we have more commentary from the Tosfus on Chumash, the various Balei Tosfus, than we do on Shas. I don't know if that's literally true or not, but there's a tremendous amount of Perushim that we have from the Balei Tosfus on Chumash, and indeed, many of them are very interested in Midrash, and many of them mix Midrash with other forms of, of Parshanut, but there were also some of the most uh, outstanding, some of the greatest of the Balei Apshat, were actually the French and German Chachamim of the Balitosis. For example, the most famous one is Rashbam. Rashbam was a great challenger to, to Rashi, and Rashbam was Rashi's grandson, and he says that Rashi set out to, to say Pshat, he didn't know he succeed, and I'm going to try to uh, engage more in Pshat. And Bukhar Shar is, after Rashbam, Bukhar Shar is the most famous of the Balitosis who engaged in Pshat. Bukhar Shar has a uh, fascinating Pirush on Chumash focused on the, the Mahalik of Pshat. He also brings Chazals often, and he, he's also sometimes critical of those who would reject Chazal Talachic traditions and try to explain the Chumash like a Tzaduki would. But nevertheless, he himself does this very often, certainly on the non-Halachic sections, even on the Halachic sections. Frequently, Bukhar Shar and the other Balitosis will explain Psukim and Chumash in ways that are dramatically different from Chazal. When it comes to the Slav, Bukhar Shar takes the position, unlike that Gemara in Arachin, Bukhar Shar takes the position that there was only one episode of Slav. He says the Slav only fell once, not twice. It is the same story that the Torah is relating in both places. He thinks so, he says, Kedomani, this is the same Slav. And, and when did it happen, he says? If it only happened once, when did it happen? It happened in Pasha Baloscha. The, the proper place for the narrative, chronologically speaking, is Baloscha, he says. So why is the Slav mentioned in Parsha Beshalach? So he says, because what did happen in Parshas B'Shalach was the Mun. That happened right away, back in Parshas B'Shalach. So the Torah throws in the story of the Slav as well. 
because it, it tells you elsewhere he says that the, the Torah wants to tell you in Bashalach all the things that Hashem did for the Jewish people, all the needs that he supplied them in the desert, the slav, the water, the, we'll discuss the water soon, the slav, the water, and the man, so it, it, it tells them all in one big narrative, even though the only one that really happened then was the story of the man, the story of the slav did not happen until much later in Parshas Palos. That is Bechar Sharshita in how he understands the slav, and the truth is, as students of Bukhar Shar have pointed out, this is a general approach that Bukhar Shar takes, a signature approach of Bukhar Shar. He understands in a number of instances that there are narratives in Tanakh. There are two, in, in certain cases, in a number of cases, we have two similar narratives that seem to be describing the same story or a very similar story in two different places. And while many other Mepharshim assume that they're two different stories that, that share a lot of common details, Bechar Shar says, no, it's actually one story. One story that the Torah describes twice, even though the Torah describes them in different parshias and using different language sometimes and different details. Nevertheless, Bechar Shar Shita is that this is part of the literary style of the Torah. He gives different reasons in the different cases, which we'll discuss as we go through some examples. But this is Bechar Shar's attitude that the Torah has this this uh, literary style, that it, it records the same story in different places, and the first example is the Slav. We'll now discuss a number of other examples, also from Chumash Bamidbar, a number of them, and, and we'll see how Bukhar Shar understands it. Another example, after, besides the Slav, is one that we touched on a couple of weeks ago. That has to do with the counting of the Jewish people, the, count, the first counting of the Jewish people. So, how many Jews were there? So the Torah first says, back when they left Mitzrayim, the Torah says there were Kishesh Meos Elef. There were around 600,000 people who left Mitzrayim. That's a famous, uh, famous phrase in the literature of Chazal, that the Rishishim Rebo, Kiyotzi Mitzrayim. 600,000 is the number of Jews who left Egypt. That number is mentioned already before they even left. It says that there were 600,000 people, men, excluding women and children, who left Egypt. The first time they're actually counted using a precise number, is in the end of Chumashmos, in Parshas Kisisa, the beginning of Kisisa, the same selection we read for Parshas Shkolem, the Torah says, Moshe's commanded how to count Jewish people, the Torah says, Kisisa is Rosh B'nei Yisrael. When you count the, the numbers of Jews, they sh- you should count them via Machzis HaShekel, they should all give Machzis HaShekel, you should not count them directly. If you count Jews directly, there'll be a plague. Don't count them directly, count them via Machzis HaShekel. And then the actual counting, the actual tally of the Jews, takes place in the end of in the end of Chumashmos, in Parshas Pekude. In Parshas Pekude, the Torah tells you that they all gave Machzah Shekel, Bekel Golgolas, and how many were there? It tells you how many there were. It says there were Lashesh Meos Elef, and it tells you further that there were Shesh Meos Elef, and there were. There were 3,550. 3,550 Jews. So there were 603,550 Jews, 600,000 plus 3,550. That figure, the total of the Machzah Shekels, that that figure is first given in Parshas Pekude. In in terms of Kikar, the Torah tells you it was Me'a Kikar, Ma'as Kikar, 100 Kikar, and left over 1,775 full shekel, which is half as many as 3,550 half shekels, the, the Psukim explained what, those, what the silver was used for, for the Adonim, for the sockets of the posts, and then the Bavei Amudim, the hooks, and so on. 
So the, so the first actual tally of the Jewish people is given in Parshas Pekudeh. Then, an entire Chumash later, more than a Chumash later, in Parshas Pemidbar, Parshas Pemidbar, the, the Parsha begins that Moshe is commanded to count the Jewish people. He does so. And marvelously, the total number of Jewish people, again, is 603,550. Now, most Mepharshim assume that this was the same counting, the one descri- most Mepharshim assume this was a different counting than the one recorded in Parshas Pekudek. The numbers, the total number of people down to the, down to the, down to the unit decimal place was the same. 603,500, uh, not to the unit decimal place, but to the number 50. 603,550. But the, but the, but there were two different countings. And the reason for saying that is because the first counting apparently took place in the, during the collection of materials for the Mishkan. They contributed all kinds of stuff, gold, silver, textiles, and so on, wood, and the silver was contributed in the form of machzah shekel. And that all happened before they constructed the Mishkan. The Mishkan was constructed out of the donations they collected. The Mishkan was erected on Bachodesh Arishon, Bashana Hashenis, Be'echad Lachodesh. At the very end of Pekudeh, the Torah tells us the Mishkan was Hukama Mishkan, was on the first month, what we call Nisan, in the second year. They went out of Mitzrayim in the first Nisan of the first year. A year later, by the second Nisan, they, they put up the base of the Mishkan. And on the first day of Nisan, the Mishkan was put up. According to, according to the chronology, we know that the, 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 the Matan Torah was on Shavuos. Moshe came down afterward, 40 days later, they, they had done the Egel. Moshe went back up, and so on. He, he came down for the, for the final time after Yom Kippur. And that's when they started collecting for the Mishkan, and that's when they, and throughout that winter, from Tishrei through Nisan, they collected stuff for the Mishkan, they built the Mishkan, and finally, about almost a year after they left Mitzrayim, the Mishkan was finally erected on the first day of Nisan of the second year. So all that silver and all that counting that they did would have been in the winter of the first year, sometime after Tishrei, Tishrei or after Tishrei. The counting in Parshat Midbar, the Torah explicitly says, when did that take place? The very first Pasuk in Midbar Sinai, it says, the command to count the Jews was on the first of the month of the second month, what we call Iyar. So the, the counting in Bamidbar didn't happen until Iyar of the second year, and the, and the counting mentioned in Parshat Pekude seems to have taken place sometime during the previous winter, sometime between Tishrei and Nisan. So obviously the Mepharshim typically assumed there were two separate countings. How on earth could they have had exactly the same number of people if they counted them several months apart? So the Mepharshim... Rashi and the Ramban and Pashkisisa grapple with this question. Rashi suggests that for the purpose of the census, the birthday, that they didn't use the actual birthday. The way we count birthdays, they use beginning of the year, a Tishrei. Since there were no Tishreis between the two counting, nobody had any birthdays, so the number was exactly the same. What about people who died in between those, or died or aged out of the census? That's a question. The Ramban argues that People did die and age out, but those two canceled each other out, and also Shevet Levi was, uh, Shevet Levi was counted in the first one, and not the second one. So the Ramban explains how the numbers could equal. He doesn't explain how there could have been, but the question still is, it was still a tremendous coincidence, it would have been exactly the same. But either way, that is the opinion of Rashi and the Ramban, and probably most Mepharshim, that there, are, there were two separate censuses. The first one, recorded in Parshas Pekudeh, it occurred in the winter of the first year, before, before Nisan of the second year. The second census is the one in Parshat Midbar that took place in Iyar of the second year. Bechar Shar says, 
That is not what happened. Bukharishar says it is the same census. The, the reason the numbers are exactly equal, it was because it was exactly the same census. If it was exactly the same census, then how do we reconcile the fact that the dates are different? Says Bukharishar, the actual counting and tallying and recording of the tallies, that all took place in the second year, in year of the second year. And that's what is recorded in Parshas Bamidbar. When the Torah records the, the ultimate tally in Parshas Pekudeh, the Torah is not recording the events as it occurred in strict chronological order. The actual tally did not occur till later. The reason the Torah records it now is because the silver, the silver was collected earlier, and the silver was used for the Melech Mishkan, and it was a remarkable thing, it was divine providence, he says, that the silver they collected via the Machzah Shekel was exactly the amount of silver they needed as Parshat Pekudeh records the accounting for the sockets of the Mishkan and the hooks and so on. So it was a great sign of, Hashem loves for the, of Hashem's love for the Jewish people that it all worked out so elegantly. But nevertheless, Bukhar Shar explains that the, they were not counted twice. He says they donated the Mishkan and this was the amount that they needed. When they eventually counted them, as recorded in Parshat Midbar, it turned out that was how many they had and, and everything worked out uh, beautifully. And that's why the Torah records, a little bit anachronistically, the Torah records the tally in Parshat Pekudeh to show you the great uh, wonder of the numbers working out so well, but the actual tallying and counting of the Jewish people did not happen until Parshat Bamidbar, as, we, as the Torah records in Parshat Bamidbar. In another version of Bechor Shur's comments, he also points out that in Parshat Pekudeh, we are not given the tallies, the breakdown in terms of Shvatim. We're just given the total tally in, of the whole Klai Yisrael, 603,550. The breakdowns of the Shvatim didn't, include, didn't, didn't occur till later. But Bukharshar, as we have it, seems to say, just as he says about the Slav, there was only one episode of Slav, and it is simply recorded in an anachronistic way because of, uh, to make a, uh, to, to make a, a, uh, a kind of narrative point to explain to you that Hashem provided all the needs of the Jews in the Midbar throughout their stay in the Midbar. So to air, the Torah records the tally that did not occur till later, the Torah records it earlier, because it was relevant to see the, the wonders that happened in the construction of the Mishkan, but really it did not happen till later. Third example of where Bukhar Shar takes two different narratives and collapses them and compresses them into one. My father would often remark, often remarks on, uh, on what he calls the conservation of, of, of persons and places and events in the Bible. Bukhar Shar is the master of this. Bukhar, a third example there are two stories about the Jews complaining about water and about Moshe striking rocks and producing water. The first story, again, occurs in Parshat B'Shalach. The Jews are thirsty, they have no water, they complain. Hashem instructs Moshe, take the staff with which you split the sea, strike the rock, for Yikisa Batsur, you shall, you shall smite the rock and, and you'll bring out water. Moshe did so, again, no Wrath of Hashem, no complaints, everything seems to have gone well. That is the first story that happened back in Pasha's Peshalach. The Torah has another story involving Moshe smiting Iraq. This one occurs in Chumash Bamidbar again, in Pasha's Chukas. This story has a very tragic ending. Hashem tells Moshe, take your stick, and speak to the rock. Moshe goes, Moshe becomes angry at the Jewish people. He says, Shimunu Hamorim, listen to me, you rebellious ones. Hamenasela Hazeh, Notilachem Mayim. Shall we bring water out from this rock? Do you think we can do it? Moshe smote the rock, water came out, and Hashem becomes very disappointed in Moshe. Hashem says, Yan lo 
you did not believe in me, to make a Kiddush Hashem, therefore your fate will be, you will be punished, you will not be allowed to enter the Promised Land. And we have that, that, uh, that terribly sad uh, fate of Moshe, that he, was, that, that he died overlooking the Promised Land, that, uh, that you'll see the land from the mountain, you won't be able to enter it, because of what he did at the, at the story of May Mariva, Hema May Mariva, the error he made at May Mariva. Now, famously, the Torah is incredibly mysterious, incredibly opaque about what exactly Moshe did wrong in the second, in the second event of May Mariva. He seems to have behaved largely as he did in the first one. He smoked the rock. All kinds of shatim, literally dozens of different explanations. Some say that even though he was told to hit the rock the first time, the second time Hashem said, you should speak to the rock. He didn't say hit the rock. Some say Moshe shouldn't have gotten upset and said, Shimon Hamorim. Hashem wasn't angry. The Jewish people were legitimately desperate. They didn't have water. Some say because they said, they took credit for, uh, for, for bringing out the water. Some say they said, do you think we can really do this? Implying that they didn't believe Hashem could really do it. There are literally dozens of pshatim in what Moshe did wrong. But in any event, the first story in Pashat B'Shalach, we don't seem to find any criticism of what Moshe did. In the second, very similar story in Pashat Chukas, this is basically the greatest sin that Moshe is criticized for, for explicitly in the Torah, he's punished by being denied entry to the Promised Land by being condemned to die in the desert. So again, most Mepharshim understand these are two separate stories, and they explain why, why, why Hashem was angry the second time, what he did wrong, and so on. Once again, Bukhar Shar says it is one story. There are not two distinct stories of Moshe smiting rocks. It is the same account. That even though the, the second story it says that Vidibartim Elasela, Hashem said Vikisa Basela, Hashem did tell him to smite the rock. So I went to the story happened. It happened in Parashas Chukas. Again, just like the story of Slav happened in Bahaloscha, and just like the actual telling of the Jews happened in Bamidbar, the story of the of the smiting the rock actually happened in Chukas, not actually in Bashalach. So why is the story of the rock interpolated in the in middle of the narrative in Bashalach? So once again, Bakarshar says the same thing. The Torah sometimes anachronistically records when certain events occurred in another, in another version, because again, the Torah, uh, he explains his rule here, the Torah wants to summarize for you in the beginning of the Jews' sojourn through the desert that Hashem provided all their needs. He gave them mud, he gave them slav, he gave them water. So the Torah briefly lists together in one narrative that Hashem gave them all these things, but the truth is, Hashem did not actually give them all those things right then. Back in Parshat B'Shalach, that was actually when the story of the mud happened. The story of the slav did not happen until Parshat Paloscha. And the story of the striking the, the rock and bringing forth water, that did not happen until, until Parshas Chukas. And here, Bechar Shar explicitly articulates his general attitude. He says, This is, the way, this is often the way of the Torah in many different narratives. That the Torah records the narrative in one version, omitting some detail in one place. It, ex- it expands and explains the narrative elsewhere, even though it's the same story, it's, re- it's recorded with different details. As another example, he gives the story of the Meraglam. The story of the Meraglam is recorded initially in Parshas B'Shalach. Hashem says, Shlach L'cha in uh, next week's Parsha. And in Mishnah Torah, in Dvarim, where Moshe recaps the story of the Meraglam, he says, you, the Jewish people, you told me, Nishlacha Anashim, let's send people. And in, B'sha- in Parshas L'cha, doesn't say that. Mepharshim grappled with this question. 
says Bechar Shar, that's the derech of the Torah. We don't need to look for necessarily for deep meaning. That, that, that's the way the Torah writes. It records the same story in different places, with, often with providing different details, different, uh, different perspectives on the story. Now, this particular example is not a very controversial one. Everyone, agree, everyone understands that the actual narrative of the spies is Pashas B'Shalach, and in Chumash Dvarim, Moshe, in his final speeches to the Jewish people, he reviews many of the events and incidents of the 40 years in the desert and discusses them and, and uh, talks about lessons we learned from them and so on. So that's not exactly a chiddush to say that Pashas Dvarim contains narratives that previously appear elsewhere, Bacharashar's point is, and sometimes the details are different because the Torah doesn't record exactly the same facets of the story every time, and Bacharashar extends this idea to the idea that a Mishnah Torah contains duplicate versions or alternative versions of some of the same stories to other parts of the Torah, not Mishnah Torah. The story of the Slav is, is recorded in Bashalach, and the same story in Baloscha. The story of the, story of the water is recorded in Bashalach and in Chukas. The story of the counting of the Jewish people. One aspect of it is recorded in Pekudei. The primary story is recorded in Pashat Midbar. This is the approach of Bechar Shar. The, 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 the extent to which he takes it is singular. He says this in all these different places in the Torah. And this is the, this is the Shita of Bechar Shar. Now, we mentioned earlier, Bechar Shar was not an outlier in his interest in Pshat, in his... In his uh, in his approach to Chumash and his love for his love and interest in the study of Chumash on its own terms, without always deferring to the Midrashim of Chazal, other Chachamim of Ashkenaz and Sarfas of Germany and France also also penned a fascinating, creative, and innovative Perushim on Chumash. One of the most interesting Perushim on Chumash of the Chachme Ashkenaz, and probably the most controversial is a commentary of Rabbi Yudah Chassid. Rabbi Yudah Chassid was a pietist, who was the most famous of the, Chassid, of the Chassidei Ashkenaz, famous for his stringencies, for his uh, minhagim. We have the whole Sefer Chassidim full of uh, interesting, interesting minhagim, interesting advice, interesting guidelines that don't have a clear source in Shas. Some of them contradict Shas. Some of them are mysterious and mystical. The Tzavar Rabbi Yudah Chassid, his testament he gave, Yudah Chassid also apparently penned a commentary to Chumash. This was not published, was not uh, publicized until relatively recently, until about uh, 40 years ago, when, from manuscript, they published his commentary to the Chumash. Just as we've seen, Bechar Shar shows an interest, a fascination with uh, the narrative structure of the Torah, Bechar Shar is approaching what we would call biblical criticism, not in the sense of multiple authors, Bechar Shar takes for granted, of course, that there's one author to the Torah, God, who, who gave the Torah through Moshe. But Bechar Shar is very sensitive to parallel narratives, to the idea that it's uh, highly coincidental to have two narratives that seem to share so many details. So unlike a, uh, unlike a modern scholar who might say that it's two different authors, or two, different, or two, different, two different conflicting accounts of the same story, Bechar Shar takes for granted, of course, that it's one narrative. But he says that's the way of the Torah for various reasons to sometimes give... Uh, different perspectives on the same story. Rabbi Yudah Chassid is the, is the commentary who is most closely associated with full-blown, full-out biblical criticism in the modern sense. His controversy generated, when it was published, when it was uh, being prepared for publication, generated tremendous controversy because he flat-out says things that go much further than Bechar Shar. 
that are out and out uh, that are virtually quite similar to modern holdings of biblical criticism. Specifically, there are a number of passages in his commentary to the Torah where he actually says that there are additions and subtractions and modifications that were post-Mosaic, that were made by various figures after Moshe Rabbeinu. Yoshua, Anshek Nesagdola, Dovna Melech, in a number of places in his commentary to the Torah, in his putative, ostensible commentary to the Torah, Yudah Chassid says that a proper understanding of the text involves the, the, the idea, the recognition, that these are post-Mosaic additions to the Torah. It's interesting that the examples he gives don't seem that compelling. He's not resolving some profound question that was troubling all the commentaries by this idea. He picks on some relatively, uh, some relatively kind of obscure points and somehow explains them in terms of post-Mosaic editing of the Torah. For example, the, of the three famous ones that, that created so much controversy, the first one is the Pasuk in Parshat Vayechi. It says that when Yaakov blessed Menashe and Ephraim, he crossed his hands, and Yosef said, no, you should do it the other way, because Menashe is older. Yaakov put his right hand on Ephraim, and, the, and, and, and contrary to the way Yosef had placed them, he switched his hands. That's the, the kids will come home with the arts and crafts like that. Famous story. Yosef said, no, Menashe is older, and Yaakov said, no, this is how I'm going to do it, because I know Menashe is older, but Ephraim is... Uh, but Ephraim is Ochif Akatan Yigdalimenu, Ephraim is going to be greater. And then the Pasuk says, Vayosem es Ephraim Lufne Menashe. He placed Ephraim before Menashe. I imagine that pretty much every commentary before, after Buda Chassid says, Who placed Ephraim before Menashe? Yaakov did. By, he gave this whole explanation to Yosef about why Ephraim has preeminence. And, that's, and, and therefore, by doing so, as a consequence, he placed Ephraim before Menashe. Says Buda Chassid, No. You know who placed Ephraim before Menashe? Moshe did. Hundreds of years later, in the, in the desert, where Moshe arranged the Degolim, and he made Ephraim the, the leader of his collection of Shatim, the head of his Degel, he says Moshe did that, relying on what Yaakov had said, because, he, because Yaakov said, Moshe was the one, in consequence of that, who placed Ephraim before Menashe. So who wrote this? Who wrote for Yosemite Ephraim of Menashe? If it wasn't done till Moshe, Yeshua wrote it. Later, reviewing the Torah, Yeshua said, oh, because of this, you know, when Moshe put the, set up the Degolim, Vayosim as Ephraim of Menashe. Or, Yeshua was, uh, was, was, was later, hundreds of years later, or, or well, Yeshua was after Moshe, but or Anshik Nesegdola. 500 years later, Anshik Nesegdola, the men of the Great Assembly, the beginning of the Bayasheni, they edited the Torah to say that Moshe, in consequence of Yaakov's prophecy, placed Ephraim before Menashe. All right? Otherwise, he says, it should have said, if, uh, if, if Yaakov was saying, Yaakov should have said, I did it, he shouldn't have said, like he said, that's one place, apparently says, that there's post-Mosaic editing of the Torah. Another example, Pasha Tzchukas again, it says, when, the, when they had water from the Be'er, so it says they sang the Shira, so what shira do they sing? So Kipshuto, the passage goes on. Ali ve'er anula, uh, the f- couple of psukim mentioned in Parshas Chukas. Says Chasid, it is Halal Hagadol. Halal Hagadol that is currently found in Tehillim. And, and they said that as a, when they were saved from Sichon and Og. It wasn't just for the Be'er, it was for Sichon and Og. And if, if, if the Jews sang that shira, it was originally written in the Torah, in the Chumash. Davra Melech, when he composed Sefer Tehillim, 
he removed some of the shiras from the Chumash, and he relocated them in Tehillim. So we have an entire section, a number of psukim in Tehillim, that were originally part of the Torah, and David decided to edit them and move them into Tehillim. Third example, third example is a technical one involving uh, the, 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 the waypoints of the Jews in the desert, Etzion Gaver, he has an elaborate explanation, we're not going to get into it, about how some of the, some of the political boundaries that, that are written there wouldn't have, met, wouldn't have been entirely coherent to the Jews in the desert, so they were added later by, they were added later by, uh, by who? In the d- days of Ajahn Esegdola, when the politics had changed, they, they, they modified a Pasuk in the Chumash to reflect the later political reality. These are obviously explosive, controversial things to say. And when they were preparing the Sefer for publication, it was brought to Ramosha Feinstein. They asked him, is this theologically acceptable? Can we publish such things? Ramosha said, absolutely not. This is heresy, claiming that there are post-Mosaic additions and subtractions from the Torah. That is arrant heresy. That is completely unacceptable. You cannot publish it. The author is Rebuda Chassid. Obviously, these are pernicious interpolations by his students, Yehuda Chassid couldn't possibly have espoused such heresy. Therefore, these are clearly not things he wrote. They are clearly uh, horrible interpolations by Talmidim. What about the rest of the Sefer? Can you, what about publishing the rest of the Sefer? Can you simply censor out these passages, remove them, and publish the rest of the Sefer? Says Ramosha, no, you cannot do that either. Why? First of all, he says... You want to make sure there's no heresy in there. You have to go through the... Once we see that there's uh, just like vegetables with bugs, I guess, once there are a few, you see it's infested. You have to go through the entire thing carefully to root out the heresy, to root out the bugs. Here, too, you have to go through the entire sefer with a fine-tooth comb to root out any heresy. He doesn't believe that's been done. So who knows what other evils lurk in the commentary. So all of it is suspect. Furthermore, he says, even once we see the manuscript is... uh, once we see it's not, uh, it's not accurate, he says, that, uh, that, that who knows if any of it is accurate, who knows if the whole uh, pedigree of this manuscript is accurate. So once you see it contains such uh, terrible things, you shouldn't publish the entire work. Ramosha says, no, absolutely not. Apparently, the people involved in, the, in preparing the Sefer also contacted Roshon Zalman Orbach. Roshon Zalman Orbach also agreed that such explosive statements should not be published. But Rav Orbach apparently was more tolerant, a little more tolerant than Ramosha. He felt the rest of the Sefer could be published, but these passages should be stricken out, and they apparently did publish, at least initially, they did publish a Balderized version where, with, with, the, with the pernicious passages removed. Now, one of the arguments that the supporters of the Sefer made in favor of the legitimacy of the Sefer was, it's true that this was never published before, this is not, this was being published for the first time in the 20th century for manuscript. However, pieces of the, of the commentary, including some of these problematic ones, were quoted in other works. Not the most mainstream works, but they were quoted in, in works that were published, that were, that were, that were in the possession of Chachme Yisrael for centuries. Notably, Sefer Tzioni. It's a Sefer called, a Sefer on Chumash, it's a Kabbalistically infused work called Sefer Tzioni, by Rabbi Menachem Tzioni, another one of the Rishonim, and some of, these, some of these explosive passages in Rudah Chassid actually are found in the Sefer Tzioni. So they told Ramosha this. They said, clearly it's a legitimate idea, and it's found in Sefer Tzioni. Says Ramosha, 
this doesn't get us anywhere. Heresy is heresy. It is clearly heresy. It remains heresy. You say you found it in... Uh, it's also a terrible slander on Dovna Melech, that he would lay a hand on the Taurus Moshe. What about the Tioni? Tezer Moshe, I don't know exactly who Tioni is, he says. And he just you know, found stuff and didn't do a very good inspection. He saw this in some medieval manuscript and decided it was authoritative. He himself is apparently not uh, very reliable, he says. And I say, you shouldn't uh, buy or sell Sefer Tzioni. If, if, if his Sefer includes Kfira, let's blacklist him as well. And we should tell people about this, he says. Tell the Gedalei Eretz Yisrael that we need to uh, put Sefer Tzioni on the blacklist as well. Ramosha has a second tshuva where he reiterated these points. He, he, he repeats his position that we, that we, uh, the Sefer is a forgery, the Sefer contains heresy, Abudna Chassid Sefer, Tzioni Sefer, it's all unacceptable. And these ideas are objectively, uh, you can't get away from the fact these, are her- these ideas are heretical, he says. Biblical criticism is heretical, and therefore we, and therefore we cannot buy and sell and, per- and, and, deal- and publish these far. Ramosha's position aroused uh, some backlash, even among some of the more uh, Haredi circles. In one of the most uh, delicious ironies in, in, in the history of rabbinic literature, the most uh, valiant and outspoken defender of the legitimacy of these uh, very modern-sounding, uh, biblical, you know, academic-sounding ideas in the, in the Sefer Buda Chassid and Sefer Tzioni was one of the most uh, reactionary, hardline, extremist Gedolei Torah of the 20th century, and that was Ramanasha Klein, the Ungvar of, from Barapak. Why is Ramanasha Klein a defendant of such uh, explosive and potentially heretical ideas? And the answer is that the Sefer Tzioni, which was around for a long time, was a Kabbalistic work. And it, apparently, I'm not familiar with the work myself, but apparently there's a good deal of material in the Sefer Tzioni, which, 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 which constitute early sources for customs that became adopted in Klal Yisrael. And as such, the Sefer was considered a valuable early source of of uh, bases for many Kabbalistically-based customs, and the Sefer Tzioni, therefore, was, was respected and was venerated by, certainly by those who were fond of Kabbalistic tradition. Therefore, Amenasha Klein was outraged that Ramosha dared impugn the Sefer Tzioni. And then in one of the funniest and most, uh, most brilliant uh, retorts in rabbinic literature, so Amenasha Klein, he expresses his... Uh, Bafflement, or Ramosha wouldn't have heard of the Tziyuni and doesn't know what a great Sefer it is, and is so, uh, how could Ramosha possibly have written something so uh, incorrect and out of touch? So, he, so his, his, his resolution in one of the most funniest and brilliant bits of irony in rabbinic literature is, he says, Ramosha said that Sefer Hasidim, that clearly, with this Yudah Hasid, Pirush, clearly he never wrote the things he say, that, that say there, and if the Sefer is his on the whole, so the, the bad bits must have been interpolated by malicious actors after, after his death. Says Ramanasha Klein, I cannot imagine that Ramosha would have written such ignorant and wrong-headed things about Sfarim like the Sefer Tziyuni, Rida Chassid. Surely Ramosha never wrote it, and if they found such a tshuva in his writings, it must have been interpolated into Ramosha's Talmidim, into, by, by, in, must have been interpolated into Ramosha's writings posthumously by people with agendas, he says. It's ridiculous that Ramosha would have written such a thing, he says. And uh, that's what Ramanasha Klein says. One assumes that he was being humorous, that he was uh, writing tongue-in-cheek, that he was just pointing out kind of the absurdity, what he considered the absurdity of Ramosha's position. 
But, uh, of course, the Tziyuni is legitimate. Of course, Rabbi Yudah Chassid's work is legitimate. Therefore, he says, what about the theological issues? He says it's our job to resolve them and explain them. And he wrote a follow-up tshuva where he tries to explain them. But in any event, Ramosha, and maybe even Rosh Lomaz Zalman, did believe that these statements uh, that basically are, have arrived, are the early precursors of biblical criticism, are completely out of bounds and heretical, while others have defended them, maybe understood them differently, but have, but have defended at least the authenticity of these works. So certainly, as we've been saying, Rabbi Yudah Chassid is going much further than Bechar Shar. Bechar Shar is not saying anything about post-Mosaic editions. He's just saying that that is the narrative structure of the Torah, that it sometimes records events anachronistically before they occur, if there's some kind of narrative point that the author and the editor is making. But Rabbi Yudah Chassid goes even further if we, if we assume these passages are legitimate and actually says that some of the more anachronistic passages, or ones that he deems to be anachronistic, were actually the product of post-Mosaic editing. I want to close with a couple of, a couple of final examples of Rabbi Yudah Chassid's, some, some, more, more moderate exa- one more moderate example of Rabbi Yudah Chassid's Bukhar Shar-like uh, attitude toward biblical structure. This is one I found, I've never seen anyone else remark on it, but this is a very interesting example in my, in my opinion. The Torah says, why do we sit in the sukkah? The Torah says, Pesach and Pesach, and uh, Pesach we know why, Hashem took it, why do we do the, why is Pesach a Yom Tov? Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim. Shavuos, the Torah famously is silent on, but it's widely understood in, in Chazal, in Rishonim, it's because of Matan Torah. Why do we celebrate Sukkot? What happened on Sukkot? The Torah is a little vague about it. The Torah says, L'man yedu when Hashem gave the Jews the commandment of Sukkah, He said, in order that your future generations will know, will remember, Kibat Sukkot, so Shafti, it's B'nai Yisrael, that I placed the Jews in huts, when I brought them out of Egypt. What does that mean? What huts did Hashem place the Jews in? The Torah never clearly explains what these huts are. So the Gemara famously brings a machlokas about what these huts are. Some say they were Ananiah covered. Others say they were Sukkot Mamish, actual huts Hashem placed them in. In neither case is it explicitly... Uh, the Ananiah covered actually are mentioned explicitly in the Torah that Hashem surrounded them with Ananim, but the... Led, led them with Ananim, the Sukkos, not clear exactly what they refer to. So other Mepharshim, in addition to the Talmudic explanations, other Mepharshim of the Rishonim, the Rashbam, again, the Balei Apshat, give various explanations of what these Sukkos are. The Sefer Rokeach, the Rokeach was another, Rebeliezer Rokeach was another one of the great German Chachmei Ashkenaz, Chassidei Ashkenaz. The Sefer Rokeach says, you know what the Sukkos were? The Sukkos were military encampments. When the Jews fought against Sichon and Og, they, they waged war, and a, an army camps in the field, and Hashem provided sukkahs for them. And the reason we sit in the sukkah is not necessarily just because of the sukkah is such an important thing. The reason we sit in the sukkah is because it is a reference to the military victories that Hashem granted the Jewish people, that he, he granted them victory over mighty foes like Sichon and Og, and that's why we sit in sukkahs, to remember the military campaign that we camped in military encampments while we fought Sichon and Og, and Hashem granted us victory over them. That's the Peshat of the Sefer Rokech. Now, people, Akronim didn't know, Akronim bring this Rokech, Rokech was a Sefer that was in possession of the Jewish people for, you know, all along. Mepharshim wondered where he got this from, it's not like the Gemara, where does he get this Peshat in, in the, where does he get this Peshat in Sukkos from? But now we know, now we know what the answer is, the answer is, he got it from his Rebbe, his Rebbe was Rabbi Yudah Chassid, Rabbi Yudah Chassid in his Pirush, indeed has this pshat. He says, the Pasukas of Shafti, Yitzbanei Yisrael, 
that Yudah uh, Chassid suggested, it refers to the Sukkos in which the Jews sat, when they, in, which the, in which the Jews encamped, when they waged their military campaign against Sichon and Oak. So, so the Rakech clearly got it from Yudah Chassid. Now, the, the interesting thing is, again, besides the interesting idea of this chat, is that the Pasuk of Basukos Oshafti Yitz B'nei Yisrael occurs much earlier than the Battle of Sichon and Oak. Battle of Sichon and Og, the battles of Sichon and Og are at the end of Chumash Bamidbar. The Pasuk of Basukas Shafti is much earlier. So, how can the Torah write, Basukas of Shafti is made It didn't happen yet. It wouldn't have had any meaning to the Jewish people. So, how can the Torah write such a thing? So, if you read the, the language of Yudah Chassid, he explains this. He says, Of course it didn't happen yet. Moshe did not write the words, Basukas of Shafti is made Israel back then. He says, this is not post-Mosaic editing, this is Moshe himself, but Moshe wrote this much later, after Hashem gave the commandment of Sukkos earlier. At that point, the reason was not revealed. The Jews, sat and the Jews were told to sit in Sukkos for reasons that were not yet explained, that would be explained later. Later, after Hashem granted the Jews victory over Sichon and Og, and they encamped in Sukkos, then Moshe went back and edited the earlier passage, he says, now you know, you know why back then the Torah commanded you to sit in Sukkos, future generations will know about the events that you just witnessed later that he gave you victory when you encamped in your Sukkos. So once again, this is, this is the same attitude, the same idea toward biblical narratives that we've seen in Rabbi Yudah Chassid and in Bechar Shar earlier, Bechar Shar as well, that the narratives in the Torah are not always strictly chronological, Bechar Shar doesn't fully explain in the examples he gives whether Moshe actually went later and edited the earlier narratives. Moshe wrote them all along in the, in the anachronistic way. Rabbi Yudah Chassid also, also is quick in a number of places to acknowledge anachronisms in the biblical narrative. In some places he goes so far as to say that they were actually post-Mosaic, but even in more moderate cases where he doesn't, he also says that some things in the Torah simply don't make sense in the, in, in, the, in the original context in which they appear, and they were added later. Moshe wrote, Moshe wrote that much later, after it made sense, after the purpose of the mitzvah of Sukkot was revealed, he, wrote, he went back and wrote that in the earlier part of the Torah to reflect the, 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 the developing understanding, the, the, the later understanding that the Jews achieved at the end of the 40 years after, the, after their victories over Sichon and Oak.